I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into uh, talking about the Lord's Supper, its meaning, its significance, and looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would help me be concise and um, slow as I speak. Lord, that you would use what I say to glorify yourself, and that you would draw us all in to Christ. Those of, you, those of us that already walk with Christ, that you would draw us even in deeper, into a, a deeper love and appreciation of the gospel. And those who may not know you today, um, whether that's beknownst to them or not, Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts and that they would become Christians today because they've seen the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we gather here every week to celebrate. Every single week we come here, we come to celebrate because of this message. Here it is. We have experienced the greatest thing in the world. Apparently there's something going on behind me. Everybody's, I hope it's just not me. Well, it is me. Um, that's interesting. All right. Um, just bear with us. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. What's going on is, uh, if you notice, like, you see this here? You see this? We have them all over. Like, there's, we're like a Mac place. But Macs, I don't know, like, I've heard people say, you're either Mac or you're not a Christian. You know, like, you go there. But I don't think we can trust this. Look at this. It's got the, the, the fall of man on it. it. Like, the bite of the apple here. Like, it may, that's what they're running back there. But, you know, you never know. So, anyway, um, Cameron, I'm sorry. I'm holding your computer, so... Uh, or Callie, I'm sorry, it looks like cameras. Anyway, so we're, my computer's been going crazy. My, you know, the Macs never get viruses, and mine's been going crazy back there. So um, sorry I had to look at my family picture, although I think it's a pretty cool family picture. Um, anyway, all right, I'm way off track. So we gather here every single week to gather um, to celebrate the most important thing in the world. And the most important thing is that we have experienced the greatest thing in the world, which is salvation. Um, those of us that are Christians come each week to celebrate and gather for that. And so um, here is the salvation of the greatest news, which is that all of us here have sinned before. All of us have fallen short of Christ. And Romans 10, 9 tells us that because we've sinned, if we would come and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And so we believe that and we have trusted Christ because of that. And so we come here each week to praise him because of what he's done. So... Um, if you're a Christian today, as we go through the Lord's Supper and kind of talk about some of the things, I'm assuming that most of you are going to agree with some of the things I'm going to say, and some of, some of the information I give you might not necessarily be things you've heard, but it will help you speak a little bit more intelligently about the Lord's Supper if someone asks you. Um, for those of you that might not be Christians, um, then I'm hoping that as you hear us talk about the Lord's Supper and what's the meaning behind eating bread and drinking juice, you'll see that these things point to Jesus. These things point to the gospel, the good news of Christ, and you'll have a better understanding of what the gospel is. And perhaps that God would um, be kind to you and that would lead you to repentance today, lead you into personal faith so that you would understand why we gather here to celebrate. Um, so my goal here is to challenge all of us to start thinking deeply. Um, some of this will feel a little bit academic. Some of it will feel kind of like um, I'm just kind of teaching a class on, on the Lord's Supper. But as we think on this, um, 
God, when we when we discuss the things of him and we look at his word, um, always comes as his word is preached and hopefully faithfully to to move our hearts to Christ and give us an understanding and stir our, our affections for him. So um, as we're going in, let me just kind of give you a heads up on some of the sources that I'm using because I'm drawn from a lot of things and I don't want to have to cite them the entire time. So these are the sources I've been using as I've studied this past week um, or really last, last few weeks. Um, a guy named Wayne Grudem wrote a book called Systematic Theology, a big book. Um, I'm, I'm studying from that. I'm also using Calvin's commentaries, Calvin's treatises on sacraments, Calvin's institutes, and a New Testament commentary series. So just kind of let you know where all this stuff is. That's where it's all coming from. None of this is my idea, um, u- unique or my own kind of deal. Um, I'm kind of putting it all together and saying this is, this is our position here at Remedy Church, and, and this is where we are. Um, so the, there's two ordinances um, in, in the Christian Protestant church. There's two ordinances. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these two things are done to um, remember who Christ is. These are the two ordinances. And baptism is done, as they would say, at the beginning of our Christian life. And then the Lord's Supper is done, con- and, and it's done once. And the Lord's Supper is done continually to continue in the Christian life. Um, and these sac- they're called ordinances or sacraments. They're, they're done to be signs. And these signs are to hold out in front of us um, and those who don't know Jesus, the gospel. That's the point of them, is to continually hold out Jesus to us and so that we can hope in Christ. Calvin says, um, these sacraments don't ins- themselves impart grace to us, as in salvific grace. They don't save you um, when you do them. But like the Word, like the Word of God, they hold out Christ to us. Therefore, let it be regarded that as a settled principle that the sacraments have the same office as the Word of God. And that office is to offer and to set forth Christ to us and in Him the treasures of heavenly grace. So these sacraments don't save. Jesus saves. And so these things, baptism, Lord's Supper, are to hold out Jesus to you to help you hope in them, not doing the sacraments. Um, so there's a seriousness here as we gather to do the Lord's Supper and talk about it, though. Um, it, Calvin says, Now Christ is the only food for our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ, that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're partaking of Him, and we're going to talk about what that means, how we're partaking of Him, that we may repeatedly gather strength until we have reached heavenly immortality. Meaning, each time you come and take the Lord's Supper, for the rest of your life until you die, you are coming, in a sense, and gathering strength from God to continue in the Christian life. So there is a weight. There is a deep, deep weight to this. But it's not, it's not saving you. It's pointing you to Jesus. Um, so there are a lot of questions that people have um, in regard to the Lord's Supper. And let me kind of give you the breakdown of what this is going to look like today. Um, I'm going to talk about a lot of the questions that I think people have. Um, what are some of the big questions that people have? And then we're going to talk about what are some of the meanings of the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about what are some of the, pres- what, some, what are some of the views of the presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. There's a few different views in, in the Christian church about how Christ's presence is here. And then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and see the three directions when we take the Lord's Supper. So, um, and I promise it sounds like it's long. It's really not. Um, so here are some of the questions. Um, is when in church history did this become an ordinance rather than a community practice? Um, should Christians do the Lord's Supper? Should we do it? Who should be invited to participate? Is it closed just to just members or is it just Christians? Um, where should we do it? Like, can we do it in our college dorm? Can we do it in our house? 
Can we do it um, in community group? Can we do it at youth retreats? Things like that. How often should we do it? How do we make it um, meaningful each time we do it? I mean, these are pretty practical questions. Um, Am I qualified to take the Lord's Supper? What does it mean in the verse when it says, don't take it in an unworthy manner? Is it really supposed to be, whenever they used it back in the Lord's Supper, you know, in 2,000 years ago when Jesus did it, did he really use real wine? What is the the transubstantiation word? What does all that mean? Um, And really, what does the bread and wine mean? So let me kind of answer some of those, and I'm going to answer some of those later as we go through it as well. Um, When did it become an ordinance rather than just a community practice, and why? Uh, The second century was really basically at the end of of year 100, going into the second century, um, the shift was from a community meal to a communion meal. They used to come together and have a big meal, and they shifted it to what we have now, which is a communion meal. Communion meal. And this is because um, there were some other groups that were doing this meal together, and the Christians didn't want to associate themselves with that. Um, This other party were doing what was called love feasts, and there were really... Commonly at these love feasts, orgies would break out. And so Christians were like, we don't want to be even thought of to be associated with having big feasts with our meals. So we're just going to do a communion meal so that we're not thought of or, or misunderstood to be from them or that we're part of that, that deal. Because so, a lot of people didn't understand Christianity. It was brand new and they thought it was you know, part of that thing. So that's really where it broke off. Um, should we do it? Yes, we should. We should always take part of the Lord's Supper if you're a Christian. Who should be invited? To come Now, there's really a few different views on this, depending on the church. So, and I'll tell you where we land. There's really four different ideas. First one is that anyone should take it, Christians or non-Christians. Anyone should come. And they say that because for Christians, God tells you to. For non-Christians, you should take it because God could use it as a witnessing tool to save you. Another view is that only Christians should do it. Whether you've been baptized or not, only Christians should do it. It doesn't matter what church you're a member of. If you happen to be at a church and they're doing the Lord's Supper then you should do it. That's the next view. The next one is that only baptized Christians should do it. Um, And this was really the practice in the second century. A guy named Justin Martyr, who was a pastor, um, they would do the service, and when it came time at the end to do the Lord's Supper, everybody that wasn't baptized, he would would tell them they had to leave. They weren't even allowed to be in the service. Um, And they all would leave. Um, And the reason why is because they say baptism, as I said before, kind of begins our walk with Christ, and the Lord's Supper continues in our walk with Christ. And in response to that view, some say, well, you're restricting people that can come to the Lord's Supper, and you're in essence saying, well, just because you haven't been baptized means you're not even a member of the body of Christ, which isn't true, because we are a member of the body of Christ if we put our faith in Christ. Um, And then the next uh, idea, or next people, is the only people that can take the Lord's Supper is if you've been baptized and you're a member of this church. So that would, like for this church, that would mean if you've been baptized and you're a member of our of Remedy Church, then you can take it. If you're if you're a Christian but you're not a member, you're not allowed to take. That's the fourth view, and the reason why for that is um, because of church discipline. If you've been disciplined at one church and then you leave and you go to another, I wouldn't know, and so I would say I don't know. You know, if you're being disciplined by another church, because when, when church discipline is practiced on you, you're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper at that particular church. And so they say, well, we don't know. And so we're going to say, no one's invited unless you're just a member. Where we fall in that is this. We say Christians. That's where we are. Number two, if you're a Christian, then you can take the Lord's Supper. Um, and I'm not saying that those other views are wrong. That's just where we are as a church. So everyone that's a Christian is invited to come and, t- and partake of the Lord's Supper with us as a church. 
Um, where should we do it? Should we do it at church only? Should we do it at college dorms or community groups or youth retreats or things like that? Um, and the, the way I answer that is this. From the very beginning, it is always the Lord's Supper has always been done in the context of the local church gathered together where all members are present that can be there and all people that are Christians are invited to participate. So anything varying away from this seems to move away from what seems to be the instructions of Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. So that the response back is, well, does that mean it's a sin if I do it any other way? No, I don't think it's a sin. I would just say it's not advisable because you are moving away from what seems to be the way the New Testament early Christians practiced it. So um, how often should we do it? What's the frequency? Um, that's really up to the church, and we'll see in verse 26 we, uh, today, it says, as often as you eat and as often as you drink the cup. So that's, uh, there's no like, you have to do it once a week or once a month or four times a year. Um, that's generally what most churches do. They do it once a week, they do it once a month, or they do it the fifth Sunday of each month, four times a year. Um, how do we make it meaningful? And we're actually going to talk about this. Uh, the way you make it meaningful is you remember the gospel, you remember that every one of us should already be in hell right now because of our sin and that we deserve hell and that we come repenting of our sin and being thankful for what Christ has done for us. Are you qualified to take it? No. None of us are qualified, but Jesus has qualified us because of the gospel and washed us pure. And so therefore, because of Christ, we are. Um, what does it mean to take Take it in an unworthy manner. In other words, I was driving to church today and I yelled at my wife and kids in the car for screaming and yelling and making a big commotion. And now I've sinned and I'm, I'm coming in here. I'm supposed to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to cover that. We're going to cover that. Um, was it real wine when Jesus started it? Yes, it was. It wasn't fake wine. It was real wine. Um, what does transubstantiation, we're going to cover that. That's just kind of talking about what is the view of Christ's presence. What it, consubstantiation, symbolic, we're going to talk about that. And what does everything mean? What does the bread and wine mean? We're going to talk about that. So um, let's see here. So looking ahead, um, the reason why we do this, um, one of the reasons why we do this is because we're also looking ahead to one day when we're going to be in heaven. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that there will be a more wonderful fellowship meal in God's presence one day when all those who are Christians that are forgiven, who have been confirmed in righteousness, and this is, this is beautiful, we are never able to sin again because we'll be in heaven. We'll all gather together around a meal with Jesus and fellowship. There's, there's something innate in us that we know that whenever we get together and sit across the table from someone, we immediately engage in what's called fellowship with one another. And there's just, there's just something innate in us. We're going to get together. Oh, who's going to bring the food? Like we, we know that food needs to be there if we're going to start having fellowship. And so this is pointing us, one of the things it is, it's pointing us to a future time where we fellowship with Christ and we have this wonderful fellowship meal with Him. In Revelation 19, this is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, it speaks of it. It's blessed are those who are invited to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Um, so Grudem says, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, then God's aim has been to bring his people into fellowship with him. And one of the greatest joys of experiencing that fellowship is the fact that we can eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. So that's what we do when we come here. We are literally eating and drinking in the presence with him and fellowshipping with him. Um, it would be healthy for the church today to recapture a more vivid sense of God's presence at the table of the Lord. Um, 
So what does this mean, the presence of God at the Lord? We're going to come to that. But next I want to talk about what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. There's, there's a few things that, that it means. Um, the first thing that when we come is, it's one of the meanings is Christ's death. That's one of the things that we want to focus on is Christ's death. And what this mean, it means is that we are, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are symbolizing the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death. Meaning as we take the body and we take his blood, we're showing that his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. So we are thinking on and remembering Christ's death. The next thing is not only remembering, but we are also participating in Christ's death. Um, we are verbally proclaiming as we take it that I am taking the benefits of Christ's death to myself. We are saying that we participate in and share in the benefits earned for us by, the Christ, by, by Christ's death. The next one is spiritual nourishment. Um, as, we, as we eat food, we're physically nourished. And this is supposed to be a reminder of the spiritual nourishment that's being given to us. Um, just as ordinary f- food nourishes our physical body, so the bread and wine um, of the Lord's Supper give nourishment to us. This nourishment um, is, is an experience while we take the Lord's Supper, we're participating in the benefits of redemption that Christ has earned for us. Now, I just want to say this because I, I meant to say this earlier. Um, from the beginning, the Lord's Supper was always a celebratory time. You know, a lot of times when we come, it's, it's, it's kind of like, Reflect on who you are, you know, don't take it in an unworthy manner, examine yourself, and it turns into what was a melancholy, kind of somber time. And that's certainly an idea of that first time, that first, one of the first directions given to us in 1 Corinthians 11, where we're supposed to kind of think on ourselves, but it was always supposed to turn, because we think on what Jesus has done for us, and turn into celebration and praise. The end goal, and every time you take the Lord's Supper, is celebration excitement and praise and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. As a matter of fact, one of the words used for the Lord's Supper is the Eucharist. Um, and that's just coming from a Greek word that just basically means thanksgiving. Um, so that's why they called it that. All right, the next thing is um, one of the meanings of coming together is the unity of believers. There's rich meaning whenever a church family comes together and we all take of this Lord's Supper together. Um, we are uniting ourselves together as we take this as a body. So the next one is the unity of the believers. Um, number five is Christ affirms his love for us. The fact that Jesus is inviting us into the Lord's Supper is a vivid reminder. This, this is kind of the whole point of 1 John. Um, is that is a vivid reminder of the reassurance that Jesus loves us and that we are in him and that we have salvation. So Christ is affirming his love for us. Um, the next one is that Christ affirms all the blessings of salvation that are reserved for us. The supper reminds us that we are a member of the eternal family of Christ. So not just here, but all over, Christians, when they take it, we're all in a huge family together. And this is reminding us that one day there is reserved for us a place in the family of God in heaven. Um, The next one is that we affirm our faith in Christ. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to Jesus, I need you. I trust you. Um, I, I, I understand that you have forgiven me all of my sins and that you're going to give life and health to my soul and that for by, only by your broken body and shed blood can I be saved. So this is a reaffirmation of faith in Jesus. We're proclaiming that my sins were a part of the suffering and death of Jesus. So therefore, all the proper emotions of us are being kind of intermingled together 
And so there's sorrow, there's joy, there's thanksgiving, and there's deep love, and there's faith. All these things are being intermingled. And this is really putting on display for us this beautiful picture of the gospel and of Jesus. And all the beauty is put out there in the Lord's Supper for us. So those are some of the meanings. Um, So now we want to kind of turn to what is the idea of Christ's presence at the table. And there's really three historical views. There's probably more. Um, but historically, there's just been three main views over the last 2,000 years that have kind of been put together is what is the nature of Christ's presence at the table? And there's three of these. Um, one comes from Catholicism. One comes from Luther or Lutheranism. And the other comes from what's Protestantism. So the first one is um, Catholic or Catholicism. And this is the view of transubstantiation. Um, and all this basically means is, according to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the bread and the wine, whenever you come, actually and physically, literally, physically, become the body and the blood of Jesus. They, they, this is what they teach, that it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Um, and this happens, in, they call it the Mass, not the Lord's Supper, and we'll get to why. Um, when the priest says, this is my body, then the bread and wine literally change to the body and the blood. And this action can only be done by the priest when he says, this is my body. And so some of the first questions I have is, do they really think that? Yes, they literally think that. But the more important question is why? Why do they think that? And it's rooted in why they, they call it the mass. Um, the word mass is just another word for the word sacrifice. So the reason why they say it turns into the body and blood of Jesus is deeply theological. The word mass means sacrifice. And so their theology teaches that a a sacrifice, it has to turn into the body and blood because in the mass, a sacrifice is being made. Um, Listen to this. This is what Catholic theology teaches. It says a propitiatory sacrifice. That just means um, something that is being put forward to appease the wrath of God. That's what propitiation is. Appeasing the wrath of God. A propitiatory sacrifice, the sacrifice of the mass, affects the remission of sins and the punishment for sins as a sacrifice of appeal. So they believe it turns into the actual body and blood because only Jesus is worthy um, because he was sinless. Um, And so it has to turn into his body and blood and a sacrifice is being made in order to propitiate the wrath of God. That's why it's called the math, mass or a sacrifice. Now, there's a problem, a massive theological problem that Protestants will take issue with. And the reason why you'll see most Protestants not take the Lord's Supper in a Catholic church um, is because they're saying theologically that God's wrath has not been fully propitiated, that there has to be a continual offering, a sacrifice to be made up to continually appease His wrath. The cross... As Protestants, we say, was fully, God was fully propitiated. His wrath was fully um, propitiated at that time. Like all of his wrath is now off of us. And these are just a couple verses. In in Hebrews 10, it says, "When When Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, signifying that all all the sacrifice was was already made. Another place in 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 Hebrews 9, that was 10, Hebrews 9, 25 and 26 says, Nor it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with, bl- with blood not his own. For when he would have 
For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And and in John 19, we, we hear Jesus say when he was dying, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, um... A continual offering up or sacrifice is actually not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is that God's wrath has been paid in full by His own Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And there cannot be a continual offering of sacrifice because the sacrifice has already been made once and, all, once and for all by Jesus Christ completely and totally. John Calvin says it this way, God has received us once for all into His family to hold us not as servants, but as sons. And to hold us not only as servants, but as sons. So He has been fully propitiated. There doesn't need to be a continual offering up. That's transubstantiation. Trans just means turning into. Now, Luther, who was, who was a Catholic priest until he kind of instituted what would be the Reformation about 500 years ago, um, was difficult for him to not continually have... Catholic mindsets as he wrote theology, but he knew that that wasn't right. So he developed something called consubstantiation. Cons just means basically in and with and under. He doesn't believe it becomes, but it's just, the presence of Christ isn't like becoming physical, but the presence of Christ literally is, it's in and under and with the bread. That's what he says. Um, so he says, when he takes this phrase, this is my body, seriously, and he looks at this and he says, um, it doesn't become the physical body of Christ, but the physical body of Christ, and note physical body of Christ, is present at the table in, with, and under. So this is how Luther would say this. What is the sacrament of the altar? Talking about the Lord's Supper. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus under the bread and wine. For us as Christians, under, with, and in. Um, for us as Christians to eat and drink, which is instituted by Christ himself. There's a couple problems here with this view as well. Um, first is that Luther believed Christ's physical body, not spiritual, was present everywhere the Lord's Supper was administered. Um, and the Bible tells us that his physical body, his human body, is now ascended into heaven and, as- and it resides at the right hand of God. Um, so his physical body can't be present at the table. And the second thing is, um, and listen, I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than Luther. I, I read people to-, to say this, all right? So... Luther's a genius, and I'm not. So this is the other thing, is that um, it fails to see Jesus whenever he talks about the, the bread and the, and the wine. Um, it fails to see these physical objects that he's using pointing to spiritual realities. All right, It's pointing to spiritual realities. So here's the third view, and this would be the view of remedy. This is the Protestant view. This is the symbolic and spiritual presence of Christ. So Catholicism believes that it's a physical presence in that it literally turns into. Luther is cons that... The, the physical presence isn't turning into, but it's in and with and under. And we're going to say it's symbolic that the, the spiritual presence of Christ is here. Um, and that the bread and, and the wine aren't physically his bread and body, but they're physical objects pointing us to spiritual realities, pointing us to the gospel. Um, Calvin and a, most of the other reformers are, um, argued differently. They, they said it's, it's physical. I'm sorry. They said it's spiritual. And it didn't turn into the actual body. And this is what they, they said, that, that there's a genuine spiritual presence, that the physical objects of bread are symbolic, and there's a genuine blessing given to us by God in the ceremony. Um, the blessing is this. I, I think I've already kind of explained the first two. The blessing is this, that the Lord's Supper sends us to the cross of Christ, 
where the promise of partaking of Christ was performed in all respects fulfilled, and knowing and remembering these things at the table do indeed apart upon us a general, genuine spiritual blessing in Christ. So when we come here and we take of the Lord's Supper, yes, we're remembering, but there is a real blessing by God being given to you in the Lord's Supper. There's a real blessing. So the objects, the bread and the wine, um, don't turn physically into it, but they are spiritual realities that point us to Jesus, which is His body being broken for us and His blood being shed for us so that we can have now the forgiveness of our sins we can, and be in His presence. So when we come to the table, this is where Jesus Himself, in a spiritual sense, is meeting us, fellowshipping with us, um, and we are truly in the presence of Christ. So when we take upon them, we're, we're feeding upon Christ in our hearts, in a spiritual sense, with deep thanksgiving and celebration and joy. We're feeding upon Christ in our hearts with deep celebration and thanksgiving and joy. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to, uh, for the next about 15 minutes, look at 1 Corinthians 11. And understand why Paul and how Paul addressed it in this case. And what's going on here is um, the Corinthian church didn't understand what was going on. And so some of them were getting drunk and God was killing some of them. And literally, God was killing some of them because of their misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul writes. Now, what's the occasion of Paul writing? You can see in verses 17 through 22. We're going to look at 23 through 32. 23 through 32. But you can see the occasion, which is that some people were coming and getting drunk and eating all their fill. And some people were coming, starving to death. We're like, we're coming here to try to get some food. We're just starving. And so Paul has these two extremes where people are getting hammered and people are just starving. And he's, he's addressing all that. And he said, you're misunderstanding the Lord's Supper, Corinthian church. So let me help you understand some things about the Lord's Supper. And we're going to pick that up there in verse 23 through 32. Um, and then we see in 33, 34, by the way, um, based on what he teaches... Um, 33 and 34 address their problems, which stop getting drunk and stop looking at this as some kind of freeloading meal. This is about Christ. That's 33 and 34. He's closing words of advice based on what they were doing in 17 through 30. I'm sorry, 17 through 22. So here we're looking at in, in 32, I'm sorry, in 23 through 32, we're looking at three different things that Paul wants to tell us. There's three directions for us in the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to kind of go out of order in the verses um, to show you those three directions. But let me read it first of all, and then we'll, we'll go into that. All right, so verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord, Paul received from Jesus, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this here's the occasion. Here's the frequency right here in 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 
Um, your your might, version might say gone to sleep. Um, but if we are judged, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So there's really three directions here that he, Paul is giving us as we come to the Lord's Supper. And remember, the first one is the one that, that gives us a soberness about this. The, other, the next two are the things that are supposed to pointing us to praise and celebration. Praise and celebration. So here's the first thing that, the first direction that God's given to us as we come to the Lord's Supper. And it's in 17, I'm sorry, 27 through 32. 27 through 32. There is a personal preparation that must happen. A personal preparation. We need to reflect on, and this is going to be different than the second one. This one is a reflection on self. This is a personal preparation. This is a reflection on self. This is what we have done. And there's a warning. God will kill you. That, that's what it says in verse 30. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, so let's talk about this unworthy manner. For whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Um, in an unworthy manner means this. Grudem says we ought to ask whether our relationship, This is what it, when we come, this is what we ought to be thinking. We ought to ask ourselves whether our relationships in the body of Christ with people that we know, our relationships with them are in fact reflecting the character of our Lord whom we meet at the table and whom we represent. So that's what we should be thinking. Are my relationships with, my, with the body of Christ reflecting the fact that Jesus is in me? And therefore, if they are, we should be assured that our relationships are right. And so some commentators are pointing over to Matthew 5, which says if you come to give your gift to the altar and remember that someone has a sin against you, you go make it right and then you come make your gift to the altar. It's in the same idea as what he's saying um, here. So when we come to the table, we want to make sure that we are not taking in an unworthy manner. Now, we also don't want to approach the Lord's Supper in, as just a ritual. We don't want to come and just say, here it is again, body and you know, bread and juice, and then go home and not kind of think of it. Um, but we want to think of it in a real sense where we're, we're thinking, all right, I don't want to take this in an unworthy manner. Therefore, I want to do the real work of personal preparation. This is the reflection on self. Um, God is not, this is so key, listen. God is not demanding perfection here. All right, don't hear that. God is demanding perfection. He is calling us to examine ourselves before he takes the Lord's, before we take the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself means that we are to descend into ourselves, consider who we are, and then ponder whether our heart, this is how Kevin, or Calvin says it, that to ponder whether our heart rests in the inward assurance that Jesus gives to us, not that we're trying to make it upon ourselves. So what does that really mean? What does that really mean? It means that when we come to communion, we are to contemplate the gospel each time we take the communion. That we are to come, as we do this, with faith and repentance. We are to come with faith and repentance. We come to here in this personal preparation time, repenting of sin. Every time we come repenting of sin. Now, one, one of you, or you could, you could come repenting of specific sin. You can do that. But there's also just a whole idea of a renunciation of self and holy leaning and trusting in Jesus. That's what we're saying when we're repenting of sin. We are, we are not depending upon ourselves, but only Christ. We come reali realizing that our only worth is given to us based on Christ's purchase for us on the cross. So each time we take the Lord's Supper, we should aspire to that type of preparation, examination. So what if we don't? What if we just come kind of willy-nilly, fly by the seat of our pants, and, and, and just whatever? 
Paul tells us three little cautions there. And they're right there, right in a row. In verse 29, he tells us, If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you don't, number one, you're going to have judgment put upon yourself. Number two comes from the next one. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The next thing that can happen is God could decide to kill you. Um, and, and that's really what he's saying. Like I was reading all the commentators. Is that really what he's saying? And they all said, these Corinthians had no idea. The reason why they were dying is because God was judging them and killing them because of their lack of examination and eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> we don't experience that today. I mean, I've never seen someone come to church, eat it in an unworthy manner, I wouldn't know, and just kind of die in the chair. And I'm like, well, that must have been an unworthy manner. That's why they fell over. Like, I've never seen that in the, in, in the service. And so we don't, because of that, and I'm thinking none of you have, because of that, we probably don't consider the depths of, of real thought we should have in this because we've never seen someone just die here at the table. But this is the Bible. And His, his Word is true for all time. And so this is something that's really supposed to push us to contemplate Jesus and have, have an, a soberness as we approach it. The third thing that can happen is in verse 30, I'm sorry, 31, 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. The third thing that can happen is that we could be disciplined by God. Now, don't misunderstand condemned. I'm not saying that we could be condemned by God. Christians are never condemned, Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have condemnation. Condemnation was put on Jesus, but we can be disciplined by God. Those are the three things that can happen. Judgment, death, and discipline. Now, here's the thing. This second one that we're supposed to do comes from verse 24 and 25. This is the second direction. It's gospel remembrance. Look at verse 24. And when he said, and given thanks, he broke it and said, Do this, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And 26, do this in remembrance of me. So while the first one is a reflection on self, it's never supposed to terminate or end as a reflection on self. The reflection on self is only supposed to point you to your complete inadequacy and point you to Jesus. So while those things can happen, I don't want to take it because I could die. That's not the end. Like, I don't want to die. It's, okay... I know that I'm not worthy. So while the first one is a reflection on self, the second one is a complete reflection on Jesus and not what we have done, but what He has done at the cross. That's, that's where the, the Lord's Supper is always supposed to take you, is for what Jesus has done. So we don't fear taking the Lord's Supper because we could die. We say, I know I can't do it, and I wholly lean on Jesus. I have no right besides Jesus dying on the cross for me to be able to come to the table. And I thank you. This is a remembrance that I have gospel remembrance here that I have no other hope. So I am coming remembering what Jesus has done. Notice if in my Bible, I don't know if yours has red letters. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is red letters. This is Jesus telling you that this is what you're supposed to do. A real reflection on him, remembering what he's done because he tells us to do this. Um, he wants us, as we come here, to truly cherish Him as we take the Lord's Supper. About a month ago, uh, just kind of give you an illustration of what I mean. About a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, um, all the rage, and you might not know this, all the rage in little six-year-olds are silly bands. I mean, it's insane. you got silly bands, and there's just they, they got all kinds of designs and whatever. And one day, JC comes to me, and she gives me a silly band, and she goes, Dad, I want you to wear this silly band so that whenever you're going throughout the day at work, you'll look down on it and you'll remember me. 
And you're, I have it on today. You remember how much you love me. I, I don't like things on my wrists at all. Like it drives me crazy for things on my wrists. But I put it on and I, rem- and I look at it and I remember, I love my daughter so much. I love her so much. And I mean, this is literally one of the same things. This remembrance as we come to the, the body and blood is, is a recognition. And that first part of we prepare, I can't do it. But it's also a remembrance what he's done. And it points us or pushes us to a love for Him. As we take these things, we're not only supposed to remember that we're inadequate and that we can never achieve our salvation, that He's done it for us, but we're supposed to love Him deeply because of what He's done. The goal is always thanksgiving, always praise, always worship, always your heart loving Jesus. Not like, well, I guess I can't do it. Thanks for doing that. It's thank you so much. It's supposed to push you to a deep love for Christ. So gospel remembrance in 24 and 25. And the last one is this, gospel significance. The, the last direction is to understand the, the bread and body. 24 says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So they're sitting there the night before Jesus was going to go to the cross, and he took bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. In a spiritual sense, this physical object is pointing to a spiritual reality, which is this. This will be my body tomorrow, th- actually this evening. This bread is symbolizing my body, which will be broken on the cross. He's speaking prophetically to his disciples at the time of his physical body that would be nailed to the cross for the atonement for our sins. And he's saying, tomorrow everything's going to make sense. And he took the cup and he says, this wine symbolizes my blood. He's speaking about the blood that would be shed on the cross that very night later on for the remission, for the forgiveness of our sins. The blood was poured out to reconcile us to God. And now we drink of it in a spiritual sense that we may be partakers of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God because of the gospel. So Paul's goal and God's goal, as we take this, is to push us to a celebratory meal. Not a melancholy occasion, but a celebratory meal. We are so thankful for what he's done. This is a joyous occasion as we take the Lord's Supper. So yes, there's contemplation. Yes, there's confession of sin. Yes, there's repentance. Yes, there's a profession of faith in Jesus. But all these things lead lead us to praise. All these things lead us to joy and thanksgiving in Christ. Now, look at this 26, because 26 is a great conclusion, an absolutely amazing verse, what it says. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, look at this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You preach the gospel as you take it. That is pretty amazing. You preach the gospel to yourself as you take it, remembering what He's done for you on the cross, and you preach the gospel to those who are here, those who don't know Christ. They see you take it and they see a feasting in your hearts on Christ's body and blood as a remembrance of what He's done for you, namely, forgiving you of all your sin and that you don't receive the punishment of hell. 
and it pushes you to joy. And now you are proclaiming, you are preaching the gospel to everyone here. Absolutely, truly amazing that there is so much in this as we do it. And so our time now as we come here is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Celebrate by taking the Lord's Supper, remembering what He's done, remembering that we want to prepare ourselves, we want to consider who we are, but then also consider Christ and what He's done and celebrate His body broken for us and His blood shed for us. And then after we take, that leads us into thanksgiving through song. And we, we sing out to Christ and we worship Him through song. And then that leads us into thanksgiving and worship through giving. And that leads us into worship through going out and being the church body in the city with our neighbors and with our, with our, our friends and our relatives. Proclaiming the gospel to them. It's a, in a real spiritual sense where we come here and we are spiritually nourished to go out and be the church. And so... If you are a believer, I'm hoping that this has kind of reminded you of the greatness of the Lord's Supper. That you would seriously do the work of preparation, but then seriously remember what He's done for you. And just be overjoyed and come to this occasion with great thanksgiving. And if you don't know Christ, if you, if you would say, this is all new to me, this is new information, I'm kind of un- trying to understand it, and I, I don't understand it all, but maybe I want to. I'm hoping that as we've talked about the gospel, completely saturated this entire sermon with the good news of Jesus, that he died for you. I read it in the very beginning. If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can be saved. If you don't know Christ, I'm hoping you'll see that the cross wasn't just for Christians. It was for those who will put their faith in Christ, those who aren't Christians yet, and that you would do that. You would put your faith in Christ and find the forgiveness and find the right relationship with God. Find, as we said today, reconciliation with the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the creator of you and the lover of your soul. That can be yours today. And you can take upon, for the very first time, the Lord's Supper. Celebrating with us what He's done in your life. So we're going to go into a time of reflection here. We're going to go into a time of, of thought where we examine ourselves. And as I've said, this, this time is not to end upon itself in our inadequacies. It's always supposed to point us to Jesus. So we want to take a few minutes here and reflect, pushing our mind and hearts to the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, realizing that we, we would never be worthy, but he has made us worthy in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, if this is a time where you would say, I don't know Jesus, what I want to do is this. I don't want you to sit here and watch us take the Lord's Supper. I want you to come talk to me. I'll be right back here. I want you to come talk to me and let's talk about salvation. Today is the day for salvation. Today is always the day for salvation is what the Bible says. And you would take upon the Lord's Supper today. We talk about baptism, the other ordinance of the Lord. Lord. So, as we come in here, we're going to prepare ourselves. And then after that, we'll take upon the Lord's Supper. So let's just spend a few minutes in prayer. And I just want to say, listen, 
I know it's kind of weird. It's a small room and you're thinking, if I walk over to you and talk to you, everybody's going to see. Not a big deal. I mean, in, in the eternal scope of things, that is a small, small, small deal. So don't worry about that. Come talk to me now. Today is the day for salvation. And after a time of preparation, contemplation, faith, repentance, pushing your mind to Jesus and the gospel, I'll come back and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. And I'll direct us in that. So what I want you to do is prepare your mind, think and pray. And after you've done that, after you've spent that time on your own, whenever you're ready, come up and take the bread and the juice and come back to your chair and sit there and just wait. Think and pray. Read some scripture. Pray for other people. And then I'll come up and direct our time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for, thank you for your infinite great love for us. God, I pray for my friends that we would all not be nervous and scared, not, not fear discipline, not fear death, not fear judgment, but realize as we contemplate, realize as we prepare our minds and examine that we push ourselves to Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for salvation that we have. We thank you that we can come here celebrating what he's done for us. I pray, Lord, not just for those who know you, but those who right now would say, I don't know him. God, that you would regenerate their hearts right now. You would make them alive right now and that they would want to see Christ in their life, that faith would occur and that they would become a Christian this morning and that they would partake upon their first Lord's Supper here this morning. Be with us now as we feast on you in a spiritual sense and receive all the spiritual nourishment that we receive from Christ in the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name.